Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, my name is Sabina Brennan and you are listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Swimming in freezing cold water in the middle of winter is most definitely not my cup of tea. I won't even have a shower unless the water is piping hot. Having said that, I've always admired people who do take the plunge. I've often paused during my lockdown walks to watch increasing numbers of people wild swimming on the coldest of days. My guest today, Dr. Catherine Kelly, a self-described salty seabird, has written a book about how and why water makes us feel better. Catherine Kelly, um, this is your first book book rather than an academic publication yes. it's your first we can't count our PhDs as books no no I've, I mean I've written lots of academic papers and book chapters for academic you know audiences but this is my first book for real people as I call them and it sold out on pre-order which is absolutely okay. amazing yeah. it's called Blue Spaces How and Why Water Can Make You Feel Better and in a way I'm kind of not surprised that it's sold out maybe pre-pandemic I might have been surprised but I think mm-hmm. this kind of wild swimming or sea swimming is something that people have taken up to cope with the pandemic that's not just something I'm imagining is it no you're not at all and it's really big in the UK where I live in Brighton and all over the UK but I have a dear friend who lives in Dublin one of my oldest friends and she told me a few months ago Catherine everybody is doing it here and I wouldn't believe her because I lived in Ireland until I was 33 and um I never saw anybody get into the sea apart from a very occasional sort of oddball person. <laughs> yeah, you would see people, you know, who did that Christmas morning swim in the freezing cold and it was yeah. a big deal because it was Christmas morning. But I live in Clontarf and that's yeah. where I walk. Um, yes. You know, I walk along the coast and there's just so many swimmers. Mm-hmm. There's just hail, rain and shine. It's incredible. It's, do you think it's the pandemic or was it something that was building before the pandemic? I think it's definitely the pandemic, um, the huge surge in it. I mean, it's has started to grow I think naturally a little bit here about four years ago five years ago and here is you live along the coast you live in Brighton I do I live in Brighton an hour south of London right on the sea um, five minutes walk to the bottom of the road I'm really lucky but it's not very you know exotic sea compared to say the west of Ireland or whatever but it's urban sea and it's good sea and it's everyday sea which is great what do you mean by everyday sea 
that you can integrate it into your everyday life. So it's not exotic holiday sea where you feel like you have to oh, right. get ready for it or buy a new swimsuit or anything like that. It's just, you know, everyday life. And I think if you live in a coastal city, you're really lucky. So Dublin is mm. is one of those. Obviously. I'm less than five minutes from the sea, actually. Ooh, I'm 200 yards from the sea, yeah. but I don't get in. And I'll come back to you, though, about that in a minute. So it's not that you were always a sea lover or a, a sea swimmer. It was a life tragedy that brought you. Yeah. It was really for you a means to survive something really shocking that happened. Yeah, I mean, I did always love the sea, but I didn't grow up near it. So it wasn't part of my everyday as that I was a, a Sunday Sundays in the summer kind of person. There was rivers near us, so that was where we learned to swim. But um, yeah, 25 years ago, my mum died really suddenly of a brain hemorrhage just from nowhere. And yeah, it was a huge shock. And I was living in London. I was just finished my PhD. I had my first lecturing job in a university in London. And yeah, I was just, you know, thrown sideways and I came back home to Ireland, lived in Dublin for a year with my sister, sorted out a little bit of stuff at home. And this lovely job came up in the west of Ireland and I went for the interview and I'd never, to my shame, I'd never been in County Mayo before. Right. And when I went, as soon as I got there and I stayed the night before the interview and I stayed in Westport and this amazing, you know, granite mountain, Crowpatrick, hovering over Clue Bay and a walk on the beach that I took to sort of settle my nerves before the interview. And I just felt it and I just thought I have to come here. This is where I need Mm. to be. And this place, you know, will sort me out. Mm. And it was very intuitive and very instinctive. Yeah. And it wasn't until much later, I mean, my PhD is in geography, so I'm all about landscapes and I taught heritage mm. and natural heritage in the West of Ireland. And I since went on to do a BSc in stress management. So over time, subsequently, I started to make sense and research and read about this stuff that now has a whole sort of research push behind it. But at the time, mm. I just felt when I got there, this is where I need to be because this sea and this air will will fix me. You know, the thing I should say as well is, I mean, your mum was incredibly young. She yes. was 47. 47. She's younger than I am now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you'd only been chatting to her on the phone the night before. Mm-hmm. And sudden death at any age is very tough. I mean, like that, my dad was in his 80s, but he yeah. was fine. He was in my house the day before and absolutely yeah. fine. And, and then suddenly they're gone. It's a very... I've had both, you know, my mom yes, died same. of slow death of dementia. Mm-hmm. And in the end, the quick death is better. But I can say that because both my parents were in their 80s. But when someone yeah. is very young, that's a very, very different it's thing. very shocking. Yeah, no, my mom died very suddenly. And my dad died over eight years. And he was young too, 64 when wow. he died. But it was eight years of cancer. Yeah. So I've had both as well. And, you know, gosh, neither of them are pleasant, but... A sudden death, I think, takes a long time for your brain to compute that it's happened. You it know? takes a long time. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, and, and I don't think you ever really believe it somehow because it's such an enormous thing to comprehend. And it's one of those kind of existential things that mixes between surreal and real, depending on what you're doing. 
it's very strange. I, I would keep seeing my dad on the street, yeah. you know, and I mean, it obviously yeah. wasn't him. And um, yeah, just kind of very strange. And my husband, his brother died suddenly two years ago. And like oh. that, he just died in an airport. Wow. Going to board a plane, wow. you know, his daughter dropped him off and his wife was waiting the other end and he never came home. It was from the UK. Up. Yeah, yeah. So wow. that was shocking. And I know for my mm-hmm. husband, it was incredibly shocking and took a, yeah. I wouldn't say they're still over it. I don't think you ever do get over it because it wasn't expected and it wasn't, you get used to it. Yes. It's kind of like walking with a wound or something. You have a scar on you somewhere that you kind of say, oh yeah, that's when that happened. Yeah. It's kind of, it's with you, becomes part of you. Really changed your life because you had this trajectory of you're yeah. starting off your career in the UK mm-hmm. and you come home for a year. You were, your mother had a business, so you were trying to. That's right. We were. Well, it was my dad and my younger sister that were kind of stuck into sorting that out. But I I rented a house in Dublin and she came to live with me. She was still only in in college in Dublin yeah. and 19. And yeah. my mum died the day after her birthday. <gasps> and it was all very raw, you know, and we just sort of hung on to each other a wee bit until we steadied. Yeah. And then figured out what to do. She took a year off university and then went back. And then this job came up for me and it was a great thing. And did you sort of, in a way, take that year out, you know, as well? Or No, I worked in DIT um, for a year. A job came up. Right. OK. And I felt kind of guilty because I left them after nine months because this other thing came up yeah. at the time. And I couldn't pass it up. It was my perfect job yeah. in the best place ever. Yeah. I could work for the Mayo Tourist Board probably, but it is just a stunning, wild place. So you found, and it is beautiful, yeah. and, and Westport is fabulous. It is. So you fell in love with the sea, basically. And at that point, did you start to go swimming in the sea? I did a bit of swimming in the sea, but initially it was more walking beside it. So I rented a house, first of all, which had sea views and mountain views. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up buying a house, which was, again, right on the sea. It was like a five minute walk through a little wooded lane straight onto Old Head Strand, which is a blue flag beach with, you know, white sand, rocks and and a view of Crowpatrick. And it was very wild. You know, it was quite remote. But that's what I needed. And I grew up in a rural place in Wicklow, so it didn't scare me being there. I remember, I think I said in the book, there was this nice man that I worked with. And he said, Catherine, you know, what's a young one like you doing off out there in the middle of nowhere? Would you ever go and live in the town? Yeah. And I said, no, I'm fine. That's I'm, I love it there, you know, and it's where I rebalanced myself. I walked that beach every day twice a day three miles long and yeah it just calmed me and it healed me and some days I felt great and some days I didn't and it's the wind and the sea and the water just is very healing if you let it in I think you know grief is very much like a a wound and if we have a wound what do we do we clean it with water Mm. and we let the air at it and that's very much for me you know, analogy of of what that was. Mm. But I wasn't doing it consciously at the time, you know, because I was so in the throes of the aftermath and trying to kind of keep myself straight. And I was starting a new job. So even people who worked with me wouldn't even necessarily know this about me because I didn't want to be, oh, poor Catherine with the sob story whose mother died. You know, I didn't really talk about it because I didn't want that to be my sort of badge or my Mm. label. Who who you became. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
So it was quite a private thing. Yeah, I think it's hard in a workplace because when you do say something like that, well, then, you know, people catch you. It's like that when you first go back to work. Now, you do, you obviously didn't have that because you then went somewhere else. But it is. Oh, no, awful. I did go back oh, did to you? my job in England. Yeah, no, I had a few months. Oh, God, in England as well. And people say stuff me? and you're going to go and don't say anything. Oh, oh, they're not. No, the English don't say anything. It's even worse. Oh. No, nothing. They just all get highly uncomfortable and avoid eye contact. Oh, God. It's really unhealthy. Oh. Yeah. And then because nobody knew my mum there, it was just sort of a story. You know what I mean? Yeah. They have kind of a different, a whole different sort of funeral system as well, you know, inviting oh, people. Yeah we go to show our respects and the more people who show up, the better. Mm. And we talk about the person and yeah. we talk to And we laugh about them and I suppose we wake them in a way. Yeah, you don't realise how comforting that ritual is until you don't have it. Yeah, yeah. So you ended up spending about, was it six years? Six years. Yeah, six years in Mayo. So it was no small amount and then you felt the draw to go back to the UK? Well, again, this other job came up. <laughs> I, I was doing a, this lovely degree in heritage studies. And then after six years, and I was involved in the lovely arts festival in Westport, and I had lovely friends and colleagues, and the landscape was lovely. But I sort of had a little niggle that I couldn't do anything more there. Okay. Little call where you think, I don't know what else I can do, and I kind of feel okay now. Yeah. And I was really interested in well being and that side of things and there was not much sort of exposure to bigger things or opportunities there at that time in the late 90s so yeah this again job led a job came up the lovely world heritage site university of greenwich the old royal naval college on the thames and again in heritage management so i went and i took it as a career break first of all because i wasn't sure mm-hmm. if i'd regret it you were dipping your toe in the water metaphorically uh, yeah. speaking <laughs> exactly and it was such a jump to go from the wilds of old head to london mm. But no, I did. I really enjoyed it. And you were beside the water again. I was on the river. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> I remember a few weeks after I landed there, the Garden Opera Theatre were playing this outdoor show. And the, if you're in the university, you got free tickets because it was on the campus. So I was sitting there having a glass of champagne, listening to Puccini or something. And this tall ship came up the Thames with the masts. And I thought, gosh, oh. now that's different to where I just was five <laughs> minutes ago. Not better or worse, just really different. Yeah. So, yeah. you know. So what's really interesting, you know, about the book is it's a combination of your personal story, other people's relationships with blue spaces, how they feel about them, mm-hmm. and then science and wellness. So it's really yeah. nice all round mix. And if you've any sort of affinity, like I am not a swimmer, I'm not a cold sea swimmer, mm-hmm. uh, and I do want to talk to you about that. But I love to walk the beach. So the beach yeah. saved me during the pandemic. When I go for my mm-hmm. walk, I walk out the coast and back, and I actually got a bit. So for listeners, Clontarf, where I live, is a promenade, and you walk along it, and you come to a beach, and then you come to um Bull Island yeah. so it's Bull Island's where, beautiful yeah. yeah there's a bird sanctuary there and it's a eco biosphere down at the causeway so mm-hmm. a, it really is a nice 
nice place. And that's really important for me. I like the wind in my face. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should say to people listening, uh, Catherine has described Westport as this beautiful, idyllic place. It absolutely is. But it wouldn't be the place now where you'd get a lot of heat and sunshine throughout the, <laughs> no. throughout the year. Like you really are on the edge of the island. You're on the Atlantic. Oh, gosh, yeah. I often said that you should have a special tax allowance for living in the West Coast because (laughs) you bear the brunt of the full Atlantic squalls on behalf of the rest of the country. Yeah, you do. And it is. It's the kind of place if you open your car door, it swings off its hinges and your hair goes left or right, whatever way it's going. Tell me what, because I can feel really alive in the piss and rain and it's shower. And once I'm wearing the right clothes and I don't have to worry about my hair, like I love that. Do you know what I mean? It's not that I'm precious. But I can't. And you talk about it in the book, that sort of fear moment before mm-hmm. you go in. Yeah. Yeah. I really struggle yeah. to get over that. I haven't got that far. I stand and watch the people mm-hmm. that go in to swim because I think it's amazing and it's exhilarating and I'd love to be able to do it. But yeah, I'm not there yet anyway. You might be overthinking it. Maybe. Um, <laughs> I'm not good with that kind of cold. But you know what? You say you're not good with that kind of cold. But honestly... I wouldn't do this if it didn't make me feel amazing. I'm not that much of a sadist. Mm. So if it didn't feel great, nobody would keep doing it. But is it not that you feel great after it? I can't explain it. It's really different from like I I walk by the sea a lot as well. And if I'm going for a walk by the sea with my little dog, Skip, hello, Skip. And it's really windy and really cold and a bit rainy. I can be quite miserable because I think, oh, God, here is this, you know, it's freezing and all of that. So I'm really comparing my place (laughs) in the walk to the weather. Whereas if I'm going into the sea, my mind is really focused on the fact that I am getting in the water. And it's almost like you tune out everything else. So therefore, you're not absorbing the kind of messages about the weather or the temperature because your mind is really focused on getting into the water. And and you do talk about that. You talk about self-talk. There's lots of practical tips in the book and there's lots of things for people to try. But this is one of sort of your suggestions to help overcome that fear that I was kind of talking about. You do talk quite a lot about mindfulness in this. Um, And that's really important. Being present in the moment is brilliant for your brain. It's brilliant for your mental Mm -hmm. health. Like it really is brilliant for everything. And actually, that's something that I often suggest to people. If you're struggling to do that, use self-talk. And that's what pilots do so that they do don't make a mistake. They have to talk through so that their attention stays focused on what they're doing. That's a good strategy. Yeah. Um, Yeah, actually, this one here, I just pick it out. You know, you said you're an introvert who speaks for a living, needs her silence to rebalance. I totally identify Mm -hmm. with that. So I do a lot of talks and I do podcasts and I do TV and radio. That's exhausting, you know, and the rest of the time I need my. (sighs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I don't want to talk and walking is part of that and going and looking in the sea or for me taking photographs. The sea is really quiet. Water is quiet, you know, which is what's nice. But it's sound. I like the sound of water as much as looking at it. I like to hear the sea. But that's why it's. I speak, um, well, this is with my sort of geography hat on as well, about this idea of sensory landscapes Mm. and places and blue spaces, very much this kind of sensory landscape where we listen to the sound of water 
Um, and it sounds different every day, you know. The sea itself sounds really different um, depending on what the tides are doing and the wind. The blue spaces in this it refers to water in oh, any water. shape, make or form. And you have your yeah. rivers and waterfalls and sea and canals that we've mentioned. But you also extend it to and talk about fountains, water features. It extends to everything. And I, I was thinking about that. You talk about the restorative nature and how it refreshes. And I don't do that sea swimming. Now, if I'm when the gym is open, mm-hmm. if I go to the gym and I do a workout, I love to finish with a few lengths in the pool and into the jacuzzi. Mm-hmm. I like to finish mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. But if I need to refresh even my brain or restore, and I did it this afternoon, because um, like yourself, you're very busy promoting your book. I've had the same sort of few weeks and I am tired now, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's tiring. I was reading your book, which was a lovely thing to get to do today and for it to be sort of my work, you know? Um, <laughs> but I said, I really need to refresh before mm-hmm. I come. So I went upstairs yeah. and I had a shower. Now, you see, this is where I say about my relationship with hot and cold. The water has to be really, really hot. Um, I will Mm -hmm. do that thing that you talk about. You do mention it. Even splashing cold water on your face is really good. Mm. I get Mm -hmm. that. I've done that. That's a great sort Mm -hmm. of waker upper. Absolutely. Getting the whole body in now is. No, well, it just depends on what. It's very personal. You know, this is why I don't kind of like to make really sort of directive um you know, this is what you have to do because we're all different. I like a really hot bath, for example. Right. Okay. And like that too, nobody would be able to get into it except me probably in the house. And I like an average shower, but I always turn the shower to cold for the last two minutes, but I wouldn't get into it if it wasn't hot to start with. Right. So my cold water is very much to do with natural cold water. And people love Wim Hof, you know, the guy who has the ice method about, you know, freezing yourself in cold ice buckets and cold showers and so on to stimulate the body and mind. And it's about tolerance and endurance and different things, but mm-hmm. it really does actually kick off various parts of the nervous system that help with mood. And if you're having a sluggish low day, get into a cold shower or turn your shower to cold for the last minute or two. And it really will improve things. Wake you up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. W.J. Nichols, Wallace J. Nichols wrote a lovely book called Blue Mind a few years ago. And he talks about the state that water induces in our brains. So mm-hmm. obviously our parasympathetic nervous system kicks in and it's the opposite of red mind which is of course you know our stress response and yeah it's speaking about the way in which water can calm us and you know there's a a whole book of, of science in that but he is quite light touch as well and one of the things that I really like that he talks about is this notion of drift which is this thing that happens to us when we're in or near water which is that our mind calms down in a really unforced way. So it's almost like conscious daydreaming. If you're walking along by the sea, as as you said, you often do. Or sometimes if you just sit, you know, on a bench and look at the water, you just kind of go off into a sort of a dreamlike state and our breathing slows down and all the various stress hormones start to subside. So this kind of blue mind notion has been really research-based 
what you've just yeah. described and I've spoken about it on the show before is we would call that the default mode network. So yeah. it's where different okay. networks in your brain actually become more active, would you believe, when you're in that place, different to when you're mm. actively engaged in an activity. But mm. really, it's a very creative space in that really exactly. what it is, is it's yeah. your brain. It, daydreaming is probably the closest way to describe it. But really, it's just often you can get solutions to problems. You can come up with ideas in that space. So it's really just letting your brain take all the information it has and just doodle in a way. It's like you're letting your brain doodle. And from that sort of thing without actually actively Mm -hmm. engaging in it. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend not to talk about the mind at all as a concept. I much prefer to talk about the brain. You do mention Mm -hmm. the mind. A lot of people do. It's very much in our language. And uh, the only reason I don't use it is I sort of feel it's a little bit of an unnecessary middleman. I just prefer to talk brain. And I, I suppose what a lot of people think about the mind is our thinking. It's how we think about things. I tend to just talk about thinking because I just think it actually helps to empower people because it's a little bit more concrete than yeah. that concept of mind, yeah, yeah. you know, but all of it makes perfect sense. It's just semantics. And, and of course, you see the word mind is around long before sort of neuroscience yeah. and technology yeah. where we could actually see that this mm-hmm. is your brain functioning. And as you said, it's your yeah. parasympathetic nervous system and all of those stemming in and from your brain. So you first found water at a time in your life that helped you grieve and helped you start to function again. And I suppose find joy in life. And then you you came back to UK, you worked in the in the Thames, I was going to say near the Thames. <laughs> and um, you met your partner and you had a baby. But then you really went through another really challenging period of time. You decided to study another degree. Yeah. As you do. You had several miscarriages. I did between my two boys. Mm-hmm. And then another pregnancy. Reading it, you're going, yeah. how did you get through this? How did you do all this? I know. You know, when you do stuff like that and you look back on it and you think, what was going on there? <laughs> yeah, no, I had my first little boy, Luca, in London. And I was in my late 30s when I had him. I'd been used to kind of having, you know, a full and interesting life with, you know, my friends. And I was in London and we would often go away on weekends to places around Europe. And I had a really nice colleague friend that we'd go off to India and we started doing some research out there on well-being. And Very we were nice. starting to write some really nice stuff that was just our own personal interest and turned into kind of a thing. And so I had, you know, a really nice sort of set of interests and friends and stuff. And I was really worried about turning into a vegetable on the sofa in maternity leave. That's why I started doing another degree in stress management. I just did a couple of modules and I just thought that will keep my brain functioning because I was really worried that I'm not going to have anyone to talk to and I'll have a little baby and I'll be watching 800 episodes of Grand Designs, which I did. Yes, and love Grand Designs. <laughs> I love it too, but I hated it after maternity leave because I watched so much of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I did the degree. I, I started off doing it part-time. I was kind of accredited out of quite a bit of it right, because yeah. of, you know, I wasn't going to have to study research methods if I was teaching it and yeah, with, yeah. With the rest of the time. So that kind of thing. And yeah, I had, yeah, unfortunately between the two boys, my first and second son, I just, yeah, I had three miscarriages in a year, which was really challenging. And of course, you know, I was at that age then where I thought it's now or never. And I just didn't want him to be an only child. Yeah. And it was really stressful. I remember 
on the third one, I think I was in the almost in the final year of the stress management degree. And I remember having to stand up and I'd only just come out from hospital maybe the day before and stand up and give an assessed presentation. Oh my God. About integrative health systems or some flipping thing. And, you know, the way you just put on your game face and you do it because that's what's required. Yeah, it's horrific. And it's such a personal thing. And, you know, a lot of workplaces and universities are very patriarchal. And, you know, you often, more often than not, you'll have a male boss or above him is a male boss. So it can be a very personal thing to talk about. Mm -hmm. And it's very upsetting when you're in it as well. So it's kind of like that grief thing is to, it can trigger you off into being really upset and and what have you. So you tend not to say it. And again, it's England, so mm. <laughs> there's another layer. But yeah, and I'm always been very open about miscarriage. I don't understand why people don't talk about it because it's a hugely physical, quite a violent process to go through mm. physically and mentally. And to then just have to suck it up and say nothing. I think is not healthy. So yeah, I had to do that. And then just as I was pregnant then with my second son, of course, I didn't believe it was going to happen till I saw him because of what had just happened. I was writing up my final dissertation for that degree about stress management. (laughs) (laughs) The irony of the universe playing tricks on me. And we were trying to move out of London down to Brighton at that time. Oh, my God. Moving house as well. Oh, yes. The house sale fell through. Oh, God. Do it all. Why don't you? Three times. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Post 2008 crash where everybody's mortgages kept getting refused. And it was the whole thing fell through a few times. And it was just like, oh, where was water and blue spaces in this? Water was just the Thames at work at that point, although several times during my work at uh, Greenwich in London, I would just reach a point where I had to get up and go. I remember, I think I write about it in the book. You do, because that's what I was going to just ask you about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was one staff meeting I was in and it was just like, you know, one of those ones where everybody's talking and nobody's listening. And I was just having like a rough time of it. And I was like, oh, God, I have to get out of here. And I just I stood up. I didn't make a fuss or anything. I just stood up and I picked up my books and I left the building. I only had my handbag on me (laughs) and I just went straight to the train station and I got on the train to Brighton. And I stayed there for two days. Were you living in Brighton at that point? No, I was living in London just because it was the nearest sea that I could think of. And yeah, I checked into a hotel and I brought a toothbrush and a swimsuit and I got in the sea and I went to a drop in meditation class and a yoga class and I slept and I was silent and quiet like I used to be in the West of Ireland until I could just kind of, and those were all the things I needed to be. I needed to breathe. I needed to sleep. I needed to swim and I needed to see the sea. Well, I have to say when I read that, I just went fair fucks to you. Brilliant. Um, I love it. I love it. But at that point, did you have a baby? No, I didn't have him at that time. No, I didn't. That was, so I was free to go off. That's okay. Because the mum and me was saying, okay, what about (laughs) No, God, no, no. We can't not. But you know what though, Sabina, is, that triggered in me then a ritual and a habit that I have done for 13 years now. And I do it three times a year, every four months religiously. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talk about striving and surviving. <clears throat> this is one of my total survival, personal kind of preventative well-being yeah. strategies, yeah. which is I go 
away on my own from lunchtime Saturday to lunchtime Sunday to a nice little hotel up the coast. So not, not Brighton. I go to Eastbourne and I check into <clears throat> a little hotel. It doesn't have to be expensive. And I leave at lunchtime on Saturday. So the morning, all the groceries and all the bits and bobs are done, homework and what have you. And then I come back lunchtime Sunday. So I'm still there to kind of have a Sunday afternoon. But that 24 hours is like a week in terms of what it does for you because I pick somewhere that doesn't take a long time to get to, mm. it's not too expensive. And again, like that, I bring my swimsuit, a candle, a book. Sometimes I bring a little bottle of wine, depending on what mood I'm in, and my journal. Mm. And as soon as I get there, I check in and I go straight across the road, rain, shine, snow, whatever, into the sea. And then I lash back across the beach in their big white fluffy towel through the lobby and up the stairs. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> And I have several baths and I pick stones and pebbles Lovely. and seaweed and shells and little tea lights. And I adorn the whole bath with the stuff that I've collected on the shore. Oh, lovely. And then that comes in with me and I have a hot bath after being in the sea. And I could have two or three baths in 24 hours and another swim. And then I just, you know, I sleep. I have time to myself. You don't have to do anything. You just do whatever you feel like doing that night. But having had breakfast served up to me in a nice hotel with the sea view, I then go into the little library in the hotel and I have the same journal for the last years and years. And I just do a little reflection on how the last three months or four months has gone. Little kind of light touch yeah. headings on family and work and life purpose and health whatever it is you know that your stuff is and I sort of say what's been happening and a little nudge of what I want to do and in those moments of pause is where all my creative stuff has come so I became quite disillusioned with academia and I, I have spurts of feeling highly disillusioned with it and then thinking it's fine over time so I decided to go part-time and in those moments of being away on my little mini retreats I have always come away with the strategy of okay well I, if I'm going to do something in well-being what can I do I've got my degree now in stress management what am I going to do with that and so that has led me to do different training courses in mindfulness for example I did other training to do with children so from that I set up this program called Chill Squad yes which is an education program well-being, mindfulness, resilience in schools. I've taught probably over a thousand children in the UK, just going into to schools to sit with them and teach them to breathe and get through their emotions and be present. And yeah, just to, to chill out. You're living the life. I can't remember here because I can't find it here in the book, but I do remember because it jumped out at me because a lot of it speaks to, you know, a lot of the things I would suggest that people do to kind of keep their brain in good shape. Okay. Oh, great. And uh, so you're obviously, you know, you're ticking your box of learning. You're ticking yeah. your box of giving because there's great benefits from giving. Or if you want to call it kindness mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever, yeah. you know, there's great benefits mm -mm. in doing that. Being active. Yeah. The five ways to well-being. That's yeah. it. And being connected. So mm -hmm. they're all in there. And actually in my own book, there's a lot of those in there. You know, a lot of this is around, you know, balance in life 
And one of the things I'm interested, because I would always say, you said you take your pause. I love that. One of the things I'm missing most during lockdown actually is I used to travel for work. I do consultancy work and I would use those as my moments, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So that's Mm -hmm. actually what I'm missing most during lockdown is those because I would go away maybe four times a month, if not Mm -hmm. more sometimes. So I do kind of miss that. Yeah, and it gives body and brain a chance to, see, I didn't say mind there, um, a chance just to stop, you know what I mean? And have a break from multitasking because most women are supreme plate spinners. And, you know, when you go and all my friends say, oh, Catherine, are you going there again? Oh, you're so great. I must come with you sometime. And I just think, no, I don't want to. (laughs) Because I don't speak. I don't want to speak to anybody. I want to be completely silent. It's that introvert thing again. Yeah. And not to have to negotiate where we're going for dinner or what we're having, or yeah. even if we're having any dinner, we might have a bag of crisps, quite frankly. How old are your kids? They're 13 and 10 now. Okay, so you still are quite young. So that's the one thing that I benefit from because mine are grown now. So I have a lot more of that in my life. Mm-mm. But take it because that is a, a total thing that I hear back from everybody. Well, I couldn't go. They're too small. I can't. You know what? If you go lunchtime Saturday to lunchtime Sunday, everyone will survive. Yes. Even if you're like a bit control freaky about making sure everybody is, you know, going to have something to eat or whatever. You can give them their breakfast. You can just about make them their lunch and you can be back by lunchtime the next day. I totally agree with that. And yeah, but it's, it's letting go of it. And I would argue that actually everyone but women in particular who are juggling jobs and children. But there should be an hour in every day that's just yours. Mm. That's just yours to do something fun. Fun, like not even to do something that you Well, that's why I see swim. Yeah, yeah. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Water is just joyful. And I think this, I mentioned that a bit in the book as well, is it gives us an opportunity to play and laugh. Yes. So laughter is nature's natural stress buster. You actually yeah. say in the book, you can't laugh and be stressed at the same time. No. So play. And, and actually, this of my 30 day plan, the second week in my book is about managing stress. And mm. all I say to people is you have got to make time today to do something fun, to smile and to laugh. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's all you mm-hmm. have to do. And you have to build that as a yeah. ritual into your day. For you, you found it. It's your swimming. It won't be swimming for everybody, but you know, no, it, it has be. to be. It's not because often I think women think me time is time for me to fix up that thing in the bedroom or get a bit of my work done. No, that's not you time. Mm. The you time is for something mm-hmm. that's truly just fun. Yes. And a lot of people don't know what that is. 
that's another they thing. They don't. Say, oh, you're lucky, Catherine. You've know what it is, and and I just thought, well, the way you get to know what your thing is is by being quiet and taking yourself away from your everyday, even for twenty four hours. And I recommend this in the book as well. Is if there's something that you've always wanted to do, start by taking a course on it. Yeah. Find out, make a list of five places where they might run an evening course, a one-off workshop, a weekend, and sign up for it. Yep. And do it before your next four-month break. And then you look back. And that's what I've done. And then suddenly I'm, you know, say I'm running the Chill Squad program. And I, I also run Wild Blue School, which is an education, again, trips to the coast for school groups. And I talk to them about the coast as a natural environment or as a human environment. And we do breathing outdoors and I can build in the curriculum and have them tell me adjectives about the sea to describe it and create stuff and do little drama things. And it's lovely. And I love both of those things make me feel like myself in a way that complements my academic self. And they're really different yeah. because the joy and affection that little kids give you when you're with them is just, they're very unfettered in their responses. And that's lovely. Yeah, they're very honest and they're very curious and it's lovely, you know, and they'll ask you questions that will really make mm -hmm. you think. And uh, it's really lovely. And I totally hear you. You know, I've moved more and more. I think for women that, you know, the academic environment is not necessarily the healthiest environment. Well, it assumes striving and striving can be stressful. I think everybody assumes that, that striving and going on a sort of a trajectory in a particular linear direction is what all humans want. And it isn't, you know, because people have said to me, are you not a professor yet? I sort of no interest in being a professor. Yeah. I don't want to be on that treadmill. I want to be a part-time person who does my own stuff. It's a very narrow, it's very rigid, you know, there really isn't much room for, you know, it's, you go this step and this step and you're judged by mm. X, Y, Z. Um, so I'm much happier, right? And I'm sure after writing this book and with what you're doing, you may find yourself moving eventually, yeah. you know, almost away altogether that you actually don't need that academic part, but maybe you do. Mm. A little bit of it is nice, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One reinforces the other probably. So the book, it's really nice the way it's set up and set out. You, oh, you, you. start off really with your own story and then mm -hmm. you share, you know, science behind what we know about water and well-being. And actually, there's something really interesting. I always say to people, you know, the power of pause, which is what you've just said, really, really important. But it's really, really important to get out in nature and never more mm -hmm. so than during the pandemic. And yes, being out in nature is restorative. You know, it really is brilliant for managing stress and for all those things that that you and I've just talked about now, and then you go into that detail again in mm. the book. But you do mention somewhere in the book that blue spaces were winning over green spaces. <laughs> they were. That was a really big study was by it? Natural England about seven or eight years ago. That was a self-report, but there is also really big quantitative studies going on at the University of Exeter. Okay. Where they have done really sort of statistical reports on what they call the healthy coast effect. Okay. And they've done things like measured statistically things like what distance do you have to live from the sea in order to have a benefit and how often and how regular and for how long yeah. 
do you need to be exposed to that environment for it to have a, a specific physiological and psychological effect? So they're working with a big team of EU researchers on that. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so the sea is just behind us here. And mm. I can't imagine living in a four-sided place. Mm-hmm. So I, I live do. in a like a, you know, one side always has to be the sea. That's just the way it has to be. It has to be open. And I've often thought I'd love to afford a holiday home. One of my little sort of hobbies, it's like the the grand design thing is looking on daft.ie, looking on the sites. Oh, where it says, oh, oh, there's a lovely place. Oh, Dave, there's a lovely place in Westport. Oh, don't I look at Westport myself from, from over here. Would you? Yeah. So I do that. But I I really would be putting in, oh, no, no, no. Sure. It's nowhere near the sea. Where's that? And I look at the map. Oh, God, no, that's miles away from the sea. It would have to either be the sea. And if it couldn't be the sea, it would then absolutely have to be on a lake or river. There would just have Mm -hmm. to be water. I'd accept a stream at the end of the garden. Of course, all this is just totally imaginary Mm -hmm. because I can't afford any of it. But But it doesn't matter. It's the thought of it, isn't it? Oh, it's lovely. I, I'm the same. I Yeah, no, I know. I was in Switzerland and Austria a few times with research work in the last couple of years. And as soon as yeah. I came, there's a particular bend on the road when you're driving down the A23 from Gatwick to Brighton. And as you turn the corner, you see the sea in the distance and it kind of sparkles up at you. And it's just like, oh, whew, OK. And yeah. many is the time I have just, even if it's dark, I've just had to go down and stand on the beach and look out at the horizon. And I think that's the big thing in lockdown and COVID as well, is we've had really strong physical claustrophobia, as well as this kind of existential claustrophobia, this notion of not being able to get out. And the sea and water gives you a sort of a natural sense of freedom or something that can't be controlled, maybe, that I think we're drawn to in quite an innate way. I did a, a little small survey during the first lockdown here where you couldn't, you weren't allowed into the sea. I just put it on a, a swimming forum that I'm on and I got 200 responses in about four hours from people talking about how much they missed getting in the water. So you weren't actually allowed to get into the water? No, we weren't. They'd banned coastal swimming at the very first lockdown because it was a risk to the RNLI, the lifeguard, life-saving Coast Guard, oh, all of right, that. OK, because I was trying to figure out what the logic was. And also that the NHS, the health service was overrun and they didn't want silly sort of casualties of people just messing yeah. about. And also the fact if the Coast Guard had to come and rescue you at that time, they knew very little about transmission. And yeah. would you give somebody COVID if they had to be resuscitated and all that sort of yes, stuff? Yes, absolutely. What I've been surprised about as I got further into the book, I had assumed you were this real swimmer, swimmer, you know, really strong. But like you talk about other people saying, oh, they want to swim out and swim around the boy and, you know, kind of come back. And you said that strikes fear in you. You know, I love the sea. And but there's certain types of the sea that I terrified of. Like I would not want to go on a cruise. I would never want to go on a cruise. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't really like, you know, that deep, deep sea. That's scary, Mm -hmm. you know, and and Mm -hmm. I mean, scary in that you should always respect that oh yeah in that way but at one point you decided to go whitewater rafting (laughs) oh yeah that was back now that was a few years after I moved to yeah when I moved to Westport I'd done a couple of years there and I just was really exhausted and 
I'd kind of the grief cut up on me and I'd always had the whole sort of head down, four year degree in Trinity, three year PhD, first academic job, big sort of trauma. And I kept going and then I just hit a wall and said, right, I need to go traveling and I need to get away from here and I need to go and do some nice stuff that I've always wanted to do. So my lovely boss, Richard Thorne, gave me a year off career break and I booked an around the world ticket. And wow, amazing. Yeah, 15 months. Best, honestly, it was great. I worked in New York for five months and made money to fund the rest of it. And um, at one point towards the end of the trip, I went to... South Africa and then I traveled up to Zimbabwe and Zambia and I always wanted to go whitewater rafting it was one of the things in my mind I just thought it was going to be really fun you know bouncing around in an inflatable boat great crack you know splashy happy days you know what a jolly jape it would be and um, no I was knocked out of the boat the Zambezi is a serious grade five river which is like one of the toughest yeah, you kind of went for yeah. the, the white water rafting of white water rafting anyway. Well, you know, it's just it was one of these mythical things, you know. God, yeah, you have to do it, you know, bucket list kind of thing. And I was quite adventurous. But you weren't just knocked out of the boat. You were knocked out. You were concussed. Oh, yeah. No, I was. You know, the Zambezi has waves in it, interestingly, that are part of the mad rushing water. And the boat was capsized, which is not uncommon, whitewater rafting. But at this particular one, it was a very hectic one. And I was on a wooden board sitting on the back of the boat, which I then heard was used as a kind of a stretcher <laughs> for emergencies. And loads of people die on that river every year, which I didn't know at the time either. But, you know, oh, when you're in goodness. your 20s and you think, oh, yeah, be grand. And um, your desire for a thrill is higher than your sort of health and safety mode. Um, yeah. And yeah, I was knocked out. I was concussed. And then I ended up trapped under the boat in the dark. And I had a life jacket on, so I couldn't kind of get out and under. And I was holding on to the raft, which was pulling it down on me whilst moving at rapid speed, up and down, wobbling. It was like being in a washing machine in the dark with four people pulling your legs under. Oh, my God. Can you recall what went through your head at the time? Yeah, I mean, I was holding on. Oh, I can, I can, to this moment, I can be back there in a second. Like it was such really? a, a vivid imprint on your brain, you know? Yeah, it was really scary, but I couldn't figure out how to get out. I was kind of concussed, so I wasn't able to think properly. All I knew was holding on seemed to make sense. You know, it was quite mm. instinctive. But by holding on, I was reducing the airspace between me and I couldn't figure out how to get out and under and I didn't know where I was I was completely disorientated yeah as I was going up and down in moving quickly through this dark roaring water I was swallowing more and more water and I couldn't breathe and I knew I was taking in so much water that there was nothing I could do really and I just had this Mm. yeah real quiet resignation that being able to swim or being strong or fit or anything didn't matter because mm. the water was too much for me. And it was quite quiet. And as I said, I did think of, God, you paid $100 to kill yourself. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I just let go and I came around. Did you know? Yeah, well, I couldn't, I couldn't breathe anymore. I was, right. I was like literally, <laughs> you know. Oh my God. It just, I, I'm just seeing scenes from a movie, you yeah. know, where you see, where you see that. Oh my yeah. God, because I can't breathe even watching those. Yeah, holding you under. It was like that sort of thing. And then I came around, you know, having been given mouth to mouth resuscitation. I was back in the raft, but I have no recollection of that point of, 
going unconscious to, I was told afterwards I floated down the river, evens out again once the big rapid calms um, for a little while. And the kayakers retrieved the raft because everybody else in it flew out, but they all flew out into the river. So the kayakers picked them up, but they didn't know where I was because I was under it. Right. So I was eventually, yeah, put back into it and given, yeah, resus. And the thing is, you had to continue the journey because there did. was no other way. I was I, so... I, I, I cannot imagine that. That was the worst part of the whole thing is I just said, can I walk the rest of the way? I was so like traumatized. And they're like, no, the river is only as wide as the gorge. There's no way out. You have to go in the boat to it and there's crocodiles and there's, you know, and it was oh literally like vertical walls either side. So I had another eight rapids to do and I was white knuckled for the whole rest of it. You can imagine. Oh my God. So that's a trauma, you know, so massive, yeah, huge trauma. And I'm sure the fact that you can get right back there, there has to be some sort of post-traumatic stress associated with. But how how did you get back into water then? I know the water is very different, but yeah, I think it was something to do with the fact that it was such a unique, specific thing that happened. I just thought, well, that was quite a random situation. No, I learned to surf about five years after it in Cornwall. And that doesn't trigger fear. I'm quite controlled with how I surf. But I don't okay. go off out into the huge, big breakers. Now, my 12 year old son, Luca, he goes out surfing now and I can't watch him because I get too afraid looking at him. But he's completely fearless. My partner goes out with him and, and I actually met my partner surfing. Um, he's Italian. We met in the Canaries on a surfing trip, weirdly. Right. But I love the thrill of surfing. I love feeling like you're flying on water. Wow. But I'll choose a wave carefully. I won't go Mm. really far out and I won't choose the ones that will pound me and throw me around the place too much. And I know how to, you know, head cover if I think the board is going to fly up and whack me. You assess your risk and, you know. Yeah, but stuff can still happen. Yeah. And I don't. So it's what I choose to do, really. And you kind of know if you're going to get wiped out on a surfboard, you can feel it coming. It's not that much of a surprise. Okay. And so what do you do? Do you just kind of have to let go, just go with the flow of it or? or... Yeah, hold your breath and go under and wait for the wave to pass. Wow. (laughs) You know, but but it doesn't happen often. If I'm told to put my face in water, like I try, you know, I've learned to swim in the rivers and what have you. Never had a swimming lesson in my life. A couple of years ago, some of my lovely salty seabirds swimming group in Brighton. I'm glad you brought them up. Yeah, oh, they're awesome women. They ran this kind of, oh, anybody wants to improve their front crawl. And I thought, oh, look, at I've never had a swimming lesson. Maybe I'll go and do that. And it was in an outdoor pool. The swimming instructor said, OK, I want you to put your face in the water and swim underwater all the way to the end. I stood up halfway through the pool. I wasn't even out of my depth, so it wasn't to do with the being deep, but it oh. was being told to put your face under. And I got up and I felt really like, oh, God, I can't do this. Mm. So the real mental block about it. When I, the session was finished and stuff, I got in the car and I felt really tearful. I was like, oh, mm. God, what's that about? You know, you're amygdala remembering yeah. that that was a very dangerous thing to do. Don't do it again. Yeah. The really interesting thing is when your stress response kicks off in an acute stress situation, doing its job as it should, which, mm-hmm. you know, it did in that situation oh, under, gosh, the, yeah. under the boat. It did whatever it could do to mm-hmm. save your life memory is actually enhanced for that moment. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's why you said, I can still remember it. I can still see it. It's enhanced. So uh, as a life preservation 
yeah. method so oh, that you yeah. can remember never to kind of get in that that's where you nearly lost your life mm. interestingly uh, and I'll only say it very briefly if you become uh, chronically stressed which is what mm. you're talking about that blue spaces are a great benefit for in mm. that they can really help with that if you become chronically stressed the reverse happens and your ability to learn and remember becomes impaired mm. Mm -mm. The the hippocampus neuroplasticity is suppressed and it's actually increased in the amygdala. So you become Mm -hmm. more and more fearful. I had adrenaline coursing through my body for about 48 hours after that. No, I'm not surprised. And I ran up the gorge, which is about an hour and a half hike in about 20 minutes, like a billy goat. It was like somebody had jetpacked me. My whole body. Well, that's what the stress response does. Oh, my God. But it was so physical to experience it. Oh, but it's a physiological response. It actually suppresses your immune system. It suppresses Mm. digestion. It gives sense everything Mm. to your muscles. So Mm. you can do that running away at speed. I would like you to tell me a little bit about your salty seabirds. My salty seabirds are this amazing tribe of women. And Ruth Fitzmaurice wrote a lovely book that affected me very much years ago called I Found My Tribe. I was going to ask you about that. Her her husband had motor neuron disease, um, which is really, really dreadful. And they had young children and Mm -hmm. essentially motor neuron disease. You lose every faculty a little bit at a time. It is a death sentence and it's a very slow death sentence. It's it's awful. But she found her tribe, which was Seascombe. Yes, exactly. And my son is a member of the Surf Life Saving Club in Brighton. And through that, I met a lovely woman called Kath. And they did a little kind of pilot group to invite 15 women to sit down and talk about access to the sea because they wanted to start up a group and they wanted to kind of do a little bit of research on what people's fears and worries were or what stopped you from getting into the water. A lot of us had these kind of trauma experiences or something happened or fear of, you know, the water itself, the fear of the currents, the fear of waves um, and then logistical things like who look after my children, I don't have time. And what do I wear? And, you know, what happens if I get knocked over? So I met this bunch of about 15 women on that day about four years ago. And a few of us kept on swimming after that day. And then that turned into 30. And we used to meet kind of just a Facebook group and who's free on Wednesday at, you know, three o'clock. And I'm going in at 10 o'clock on Friday morning. Does anybody fancy it? So very self-regulating. And it's just turned into this lovely bunch of really positive, joyful women. And lots of people have stress and mental health issues and, you know, it's a small M, small H, but it's a place where we can meet to get into the water. You don't have to talk deeply or sorrowfully or anything about your problems or your issues. You can if you want to, but it's just a thing of we're here to get in the sea. And we, as I said, this lovely Japanese phrase of living water, which is that the sea takes some of our emotions and our worries from us and we pour ourselves into it. And right. I think it's a lovely concept of that's what we're there for is to let the sea kind of take what we need out of us and we do it sort of together but not in a real group or a gang or anything it's a very soft gathering of a community of people who are interested in just being in the water for a little bit you just go to have a bit of fun 
Yeah, well, this group is because there's loads of groups that are, you know, swimming clubs and stuff and outdoor swimming yeah. clubs. And they're all about, you know, how fast did you swim between the two piers and how many kilometers did you do? And have you got a watch that records everything? Now, that mm. is not what salty seabirds are. Their byline is salted well-being. And it's dippers and bobbers. And if you want to go out, you can and you don't. I swim parallel to the shore, groin to groin within my depth because that's my comfort zone but the water works in the very same way the water doesn't know how many meters out you are or how long you've been in there for and how long would you stay in the water um in the winter this time of the year when it's really cold single figures probably 10 minutes or less okay and do you have one of those big dry robe coats i have a dry robe which my lovely friends bought for me for a present and sometimes i wear it sometimes i don't you know, sometimes people feel like they need the gear to feel safe to do something. And if you mm-hmm. can see through that or to feel like they fit in and think, well, just, you know, whatever it takes to get you in the water is OK, you mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. just because you have an expensive dry robe and, you know, you can afford it doesn't mean that you're not under stress or under pressure. Do you wear like a wetsuit in the winter or do you just go in in your swimsuit? I don't know. I can't bear wetsuits. I can't breathe in a wetsuit. Yes. Okay. No. So, And it's such a faff as well. You know, but if you want to swim in a wetsuit for anyone listening, go for it. By all means, do whatever it takes to get yourself into the water. It doesn't matter what you wear, to be honest. I swim in a swimsuit and in the winter I have neoprene gloves and boots yeah. just to stop your hands and feet falling off. Um Brighton is a pebble beach, so it cuts the feet off you if you don't have oh, right, okay. on your feet. You know, our lovely seabirds group are very much about just come as you are. And, mm. you know, how do you get a beach body ready? Take your body to the beach. That's it. Lovely. I don't know about you, but I'm fed up seeing on Instagram, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so, all these famous people, you know, shows off her eight pack at 41, shows off her six pack at 56. Shows mm-hmm. off. And I'm kind of going, actually, I'd really like to see them showing off their normal body yeah. at 56. That would mean so much more to me. Mm-hmm. I'm all for fitness and health and well-being. Mm-hmm. And it is important to actually look after, your, you know, being overweight mm-hmm. is not good for your brain health. It really mm-hmm. isn't. It puts stress on your cardiovascular system and other parts of your body that your brain depends on. Mm-hmm. But also, I just feel we've enough pressures on us. And it was women's magazines sharing it. And I yeah. go, oh, please. Stop. I know. Well, do you know what's lovely about the sea, though, or about water? Once you get into it, literally get into it as a habit or literally get into it, is you connect to yourself. So I think one of the things and I certainly do it when I know I should be kind of doing more with nutrition or exercise, I kind of dissociate from my body because I'm very much brain, mind, thinking, talking, you know, is my modus operandi. So I kind of often don't pay much attention to what's going on from the neck down but when you are in cold water you connect with your body again Mm -hmm. because it is especially cold water because you're so freezing so you connect to yourself and you connect to your body and you connect to the water itself and that very surreptitiously trickles into your consciousness of this feels good and look what my body is able to do. And it's a sense of achievement of, look, I went in that cold water and look, I swam and I faced my fears and I did something and 
therefore maybe I'll be able to handle whatever is going on today or this week, you know, because I could do that. I can do something else. And it's about what our bodies can do and therefore what that symbolizes to ourselves as people, what we can do. So it's not about your eight pack or how you look in a swimsuit or whatever. Like nobody cares. Our salty seabirds, if anybody comments on anyone, they like get shot down fairly rapidly. Yeah, yeah. No, you can see that. You can see that with the swimmers. That is yeah. lovely. I think what I may do is, because I did look at it last year and I actually said to my husband, because I'd love to be able to do that. And he said, oh no, you're mad, you're mad. But actually maybe, but I'll have, I would have to wait till the summertime. Wait till the summer. And then just kind of accidentally don't stop. That's what I did. Yeah, because I just kept going to October and I didn't tell myself I was doing it because then that's kind of pressure. Yeah, so it's just like, oh, no, let's keep going. And if you find a yeah. few people who you get on with and who encourage you, because that's what prevents you from stopping. Yeah. Is if somebody says, come on, now we're going in at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. You talk about that and your salty yeah. seabirds, you know, with yeah. any form of exercise, doing it in a group has additional mm. benefits. You've got your social connection. You've got opportunities to smile and laugh with people, yeah. but you're also more likely to do it again because mm. somebody knows you won't do it. Yeah. You know, I haven't seen you for a while now. Yeah, whatever. So no, that that definitely happens. In one of the chapters of the book, I speak, I'm a mindfulness practitioner as well. And it's the one thing that really clicks with me in a very practical sense of something that you can do as a way to kind of reframe your navigation through your own life, I think. And John Kabat-Zinn in his great book, Full Catastrophe Living, speaks about the different principles of mindfulness. So in the book, I've taken some of those and just applied them to blue spaces. So I think one of the most powerful ones for me is the principle of non-judging. And I think we live an awful lot of our lives constantly with this mental ticker tape of this is good, this is bad, I like that, I don't like that. Why is it raining? I want it to be sunny. Why is is this person like this? You know, this guy's an idiot. You know, we're constantly very busy with our judging voice, our reactions to every situation, everything, everyone maybe. And to get quiet with non-judging means that a trick that I use is to describe something rather than to judge it. So if you have a boss maybe that you don't like, you might just say, Egypt speaking, breathe in, breathe out. Well, Egypt is a little bit of judgment. <laughs> maybe it is. Or person speaking. Speaking, you breathe say in, person breathe out. speaking. Yeah, you can say person. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, you're right. Yeah, person yeah. speaking, breathe in, breathe out. Or there is rain rather than, yeah. oh, for God's sake, what? you know, whatever. So no value judgment just really is what it is. Yeah. It's value judgment. It yeah. is what it is. One of those principles you also have is acceptance. And I think yeah. that's really important in terms, I'm all for making change happen and all those sorts mm-hmm. of things. But there's a lot of things in life that we really do need to accept where they're yeah. beyond our control and like Absolutely. the weather or whatever. And acceptance of those is very freeing. And, and I is. think they're closely linked with the with judgment. Judging. Yeah, it's that whole thing of, I didn't get what I wanted and I got what I didn't want so now I'm going to be upset about it for my entire life or keep going back over things and I think that's where mindfulness is really powerful is to notice our thoughts jumping backwards to 
the past and, you know, what we could have done, should have done, what we would have liked to happen, you know, and that sort of thing. And then jumping forwards to future worries about what's going to happen next. I don't know. Rather than just being in the present moment. In the moment. And that's why present mindedness is an antidote. You know, it keeps depression and anxiety at bay because that's what both of those are, is looking either too far back or too far forward. Absolutely. You know, if we apply non-judging to blue spaces, we can talk about not judging the sea for what we want to be doing. If it should be warmer, it should be calmer. I didn't want waves, I wanted calm, or I did want waves and there's none there. Or judging myself in terms of my body, oh, I need to be thinner, I need to have the right gear to get in here, you know, all the kind of judging, or I'm judging my ability, that person's able to swim further than me, or they're not afraid, or they're this or they're that, you know, just be with ourselves in our bodies and in the blue space and allow it and allow ourselves to get what we need from it. And mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And as you say, acceptance is, is one. And non-striving, is again, a first cousin of non-judging, which is, you know, you don't have to have the right stuff or be able to swim out to the boys or around the headland and back. Just be peaceful with what you need. The other day, I had a really heavy week of brain work and marking and frustration and there was homeschooling and I was all over the place. And I didn't have much time and I just threw on my stuff and I ran down to the end of the road and I got into the sea and I just dunked my head under for five dips just and it literally gave me brain freeze Um, (laughs) and it just cleared my head and I didn't even have time to swim really. But I just knew I needed to do that to clear my head and I didn't have time to, I didn't want to do a breathing meditation. I wasn't in the mood. I just wanted the sea to kind of. You needed that sharp kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Jolt me. The jolt to to switch up. Yeah, Yeah. no, no, that's great. It it kind of really is a change. I think it's important to say, I mean, really what it is, is it's balance. You know, you can't Mm. spend every moment of every day present in the moment because you do need to plan and you do need to learn from mistakes. And similarly, you know, when you speak, about us living a lot of our lives on autopilot we do need to live some of our lives on autopilot to give our brain you know because our brain it takes less resources to do those habitual things but it is really about finding balance we tend to kind of switch over too much into autopilot so um, given that you have survived quite a number of challenging things throughout your life I mean obviously we're talking about blue spaces and your book so there's a sense of where your answer will be but what would you say really has been the key to your surviving and thriving in life. I mean, there's never one key, but I think if I was to give advice to people is just to get outside, get out in nature. Um, For me, it's blue space. For others, it, it may be different forms of nature. But for me, it's get outside, breathe. And, you know, David Attenborough gave a lovely piece of advice. I read an interview by him recently. And he was asked for a tip and I'm slightly stealing it here, but he just said, spend half an hour a day outside in nature. And it could be your garden. For me, it's by the sea. It could be by a lake, a pond, a fountain, but spend half an hour a day in nature, quietly, just breathing and see what happens Mm. and see what you Mm. can notice. So don't have your phone on and don't judge and watch and, you know, assess everything. Just breathe see what you can notice, see what you can hear, what you can actually see. And if you're going to get into water, really feel the feelings of being in your body, 
in water with your breath. Catherine's book, Blue Spaces, How and Why Water Makes You Feel Better, will be published next week on April 29th, 2021. It is a really informative, interesting and insightful read. Grab yourself a copy wherever you buy books. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Please follow me on Instagram, YouTube or Twitter. You'll find the links to all my social media on my website, superbrain.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.